0: All right, Romans 9. You ready for this? I don't know if you should shake your heads yes yet. (laughs) All right, here we go. The first 29 verses. Buckle up. I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all who are children of Abraham because they are his his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our, fo- our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing good, ba- good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I have loved." But Esau I have hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. That I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? whom he is called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not my beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. Your word challenges us. Your word makes us come to grips with things that are difficult. So we ask, Lord, that you would help me to amplify what you say, to make it clear and plain, knowing that I'm very limited, not only in time but capacity. And Lord, thank you that you work beyond me and even against me, that your spirit is at work when the word is read. So Holy Spirit, we ask that you would bring us to an understanding of who we are and who Christ is afresh and that we might worship and bow down and be thankful. Help us, Lord. Help us. Help us by detaching our desire to worship self and cause us to have deeper desire to worship you for your glory. Amen. I realize that as we look at Romans chapter 9, you're probably going to hear the contents of this chapter in one of three ways. The first way that you might hear this is this. You might have never heard of the stuff before that I just read. And if that's you this morning, that's okay. It's all right. At some point, you're going to have to deal with what's there. But if it's the first time you've ever thought about any of this that's going on in Romans 9, it's okay. Just hang in there. If you have a little bit of familiarity with Romans 9, but maybe you're just really confused about what's going on, that's okay too. I want to encourage you to ask questions. I want to encourage you to slow down and think about what God says. I want to encourage you to ask whatever questions you need to ask whenever you need to ask it. Hopefully not during when I'm talking, but I mean, to write them down, to meet with me or meet with someone else or, or get some resources on how you can process this because you need to grow. We need to figure this out together. I'll remind you of the story of my dad that I've told you over and over. My dad's in the ministry he was ordained before he went to college. He went to seminary. He was pastoring a church. And he kept reading the book of Romans. And he couldn't reconcile what he was reading in Romans with everything that he had been taught throughout his childhood, even through seminary. I asked my dad about this one day. And he told me all that. And I said, well, well what would you do? And he said, well, Dave, I knew the problem wasn't with Romans. So it took him five years to try to figure things out, five years. So slow down, take your time, understand the word of God. The third way you might hear this this morning is you might be familiar with this stuff. Look, if that's you, understand that the contents of Romans nine and your familiarity with it doesn't make you an elite Christian. It doesn't make you better than anybody else. The purpose of Romans 9 is to bring you, to bring us low. The purpose of Romans 9 is to help us understand there is tremendous mystery with God. And not only does it bring us low, but it exalts God. So if it makes you think that you're better than someone else, that is the opposite of what this doctrine and what this teaching is supposed to do. So bow down. And may your heart be filled with confidence in God, not anything else. In other words, to be very specific, do not weaponize Romans 9 in your relationships. That is a travesty. And I know it firsthand because I've done it, and it is a disaster. And I still have the scars of what I did by weaponizing things like this. It's an embarrassment to God. Don't follow what I've done. Be humbled and worship. So let's start this morning looking at Romans 9 with an illustration. I want you to imagine that you have four shady friends. And I hope you've got some shady friends. I want you to imagine that those four shady friends have decided that they're going to go rob a bank. And you find out about it. And so you decide, I'm going to go meet with these four shady friends of mine. So you go to meet with them, and you happen to meet with them on the day that they are finalizing their plans to rob the bank. And in meeting with them, you tell them, hey, this is a horrible idea. Don't do this. This is bad. It's ridiculous. Don't do it. And they hear what you say, and they shove you out of the way, and they take off. But man, you are resilient. And being the friend that you are, you chase after and you tackle one of them and get them to the ground. And the other three just take off. They get in the car, they drive, they rob the bank. There is a massive shootout. They get apprehended, they get arrested, and they get the maximum sentence possible. Now, that's an illustration of Romans 9. I want you to put that illustration on the proverbial shelf of your mind. And I want you to be thinking about that illustration as we go through the text. Because I know that illustrations are powerful and can be helpful. We'll see if this works or not. Have that illustration on the shelf of your mind. So let's look at the first five verses. Here's what we learn in the first five verses. The first five verses are showing us how we should relate to anyone who is away from Jesus. So if you're here this morning and and you have no idea about Christianity, well, listen to this. You get to eavesdrop on how God tells his people that they ought to relate to people who are away from Christ. So when you look at the first... oh. The first five verses, by the way, you need to remember the background. So remember that the guy that writes this, the human author, is named Paul. Real quick background. Because if you forget this or don't know it, you'll really misinterpret what's going on here in the first five verses. Put yourself in the first century. You're a follower of Jesus in the first century. And you hear about this guy named Saul. And what's he doing He is chasing after people like you. And he's hunting people like you down. Like literally, he's trying to arrest you. He's even consenting to you being put to death. Like he is hell bent on wiping out these followers of Jesus. And then, he is converted. Now as a follower of Jesus, you hear about Saul being converted, and what do you think of him? Oh, wait a minute here. I'm not sure I want to be in the same room with this guy. I mean, he was just converted. This is kind of scary because he used to be after people like me, and now something's changed in his life? I'm not sure about that. Or at least I'm going to give it some time before I realize I'm going to be friends with this guy. Make sense to you? Make sense to me? Well, how about the other side of the coin? Imagine if you were a Jew in the first century, and you were all about this guy named Saul and what he's doing and then he's converted? What do you think is a Jew? Traitor. This guy's a traitor. He was one of us and now look what he's doing. He was persecuting followers of Jesus on our behalf and now he's one of them. He is a traitor. You see, all that's background of these first five verses, right? And oh, by the way, when I say traitor and the Jews thought of him as a traitor, you can read selections in the book of Acts, and you'll find out that they came, after, they came after Paul to kill him. You can read about what he says in 2 Corinthians 11, that he was whipped and beaten. That's all background of these first five verses. And so the question then is, well, if the Christians and followers of Jesus are skeptical of him, And the Jews think of him as a traitor. What does Paul think of his own people? What's his view of his own people? And you can't read the first five verses without coming away with the sentiment that, man, he is really keyed up, isn't he? Look at the first five verses again. He's tormented in his soul. Look at verse 3, for my kinsmen, my people, the Jewish people, he is all cranked up and he's not mad, he's not defensive, his heart is hurting. In these five verses, he is pouring out his heart because he cares about his people. Look at what he says, look at verse 4 and 5, my people have all these privileges, I'm not going to remember them all. But look at verse 4 and 5. They have been given the adoption. They have been given the glory, the Shekinah glory that led God's people in the wilderness by day and by night. It was the glory of God in the tabernacle, the glory of God in the temple. It was the symbolic presence of God via cloud, via glory. He, uh, uh, he remembers that they were given the law, that God decided to give the Ten Commandments to his people, the Jewish people. He remembers that the patriarchs came from the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all of them. God had blessed the people immeasurably. The covenants that God throughout history was unfolding his plan throughout history, and he comes to re-up all the time and make it clearer all the time, and yet. Paul is in anguish in his soul because they have all these privileges and yet they did not receive Jesus as the Messiah predominantly. Remember, the point of the adoption, the point of the glory, the point of the covenants, the point of the patriarchs, the point of worship, the point of the sacrifices was all to magnify and show Christ. All of it. And yet, his people predominantly didn't receive Jesus as the Messiah. And Paul is tormented in his soul. He has anguish. One of these words carries the idea of where we get the, where we get the disease of lupus. That he, he is in pain because of what is going on. That's how much he cares about his people. He even says in these first five verses, I wish that I could be accursed. Do you remember reading that? Let me ask you. Do you have anyone in your life that you perceive is away from Jesus? Are you burdened for them? Really? Yes, I'm going to let that sit. Do you have anyone in your life that you think is away from Jesus? Are you burdened for them? What about if they hate you? Because that's what Paul's talking about. Are you burdened for them? Is your is your instinct to pray and think and engage? Or you just lash out just because they disagree. First five verses are showing us how we ought to relate to people who are away from Jesus. Verses 6 through 29, our second of two stops on the journey. In verses 6 through 29, we have Q&A about sin and mercy. Verses 6 through 29 are all about questions and answers about sin and mercy. Here are the three questions that are present. If you'd like to take notes or follow along or look back at your Bible, I want to show you this comes from it. So in verse 6 is question number 1. Has God's word failed? I mean, if, if God's people have been given all these privileges, the Jews have been given all these privileges and they don't receive Jesus as the Messiah, the implication is has God's word failed? It's question number one. Question number two is in verse 14. Is God unjust? And question number three is in verse 19. Well, how can God find fault? How in the world can I be responsible? Those are the three questions. And Paul seeks to answer those three questions. The first question is God's word, has it failed? Remember that they've been given all these privileges and they they don't receive Jesus as Messiah, so has God's word not accomplished anything? Is it just powerless? Has it failed? And here's Paul's answer, no. Now you can work out all the details but Paul says no. And then he goes on to talk about this. Look at it, verses 7 and following. All Israel is not Israel. There's an external side to Israel, and there's an internal side. Paul's already talked about this in chapter 2. What's a true Jew? It has nothing to do with ethnicity. It has everything to do with the change of heart. Paul had to work through all these things himself because he used to think when he looked at the Old Testament that God cared about the Jewish people and God cared that he was so much that he was going to use political power to restore his people back to power and that everything hinged on the land. Paul used to think in the wrong way before he was converted and he's had to work through all of that. How do I relate to God? Who is God? What's a relationship with him like? He's giving us the answers that he's come to because he had to work through it himself. So he starts by saying, all Israel is not Israel. In other words, our relationship with God is not based upon bloodline. That's why he goes to talk about Abraham next. Someone isn't good with God just because they're a bloodline descendant of Abraham. He even goes all the way down the line to Rebekah's two sons, Jacob and Esau. You see that in the text? Paul makes it so clear. Look before they were born. God had made a decision. Before they had done anything good or evil, the text says, God had decided. And oh, by the way, as a quick sidebar, if reading Jacob I loved and Esau I hated gives you heartburn, let me just quickly address this. Quickly address this. When it says Jacob I loved, Esau I hated, it's, it's an idiom. Um, and idioms are, are, are not meant to be taken literally. Let, let me give you some idioms that we use. Um, someone comes to you and wants to say something important. You might say something like, I'm all ears. Well, that's not literally true. You just got two. But you're emphasizing something. Or when someone, your boss, comes to you and gives you a bunch of tasks, and you look at what you need to do, and you think, man, this is a piece of cake. It's not literally a piece of cake. But the point is, this is going to be easy. These are idioms. Jesus used this kind of language. When he talked about a relationship to follow him, means that you should, by comparison, hate your mother and father and brother and sister because you can't love me and love them in the same way. So by comparison, you ought to hate your parents and your family because that's how supreme Jesus is supposed to be in your life. He even says it again when he talks about your own life. It's like, look, you need to hate yourself if you want to find life. Jesus is not encouraging self-harm, is he? He's saying, by comparison, I need to be supreme. He even talks this way about money. You can't serve two masters. Either you'll love the one or hate the other. Meanwhile, in other places, he says, no, it's good to make money and to be generous and to give. So when God says this about Esau, he's saying, by comparison, his love for Jacob is so much more in a saving way you see the point is has God's word failed so many of God's people that received all these privileges that all pointed to Jesus and the majority of them have not received Jesus as the Messiah so has his word failed no because relation with God has never dependent on our bloodline or our effort or what we have done It depends on God's initiating love. Was Abraham looking for God? No. Did God choose the Jewish people because they were great in number or because they were powerful? No. Did God choose Jacob over Esau because he had done anything that Esau hadn't? No. They were conceived at the same time before they had done anything. God was moving toward Jacob, and oh, by the way, he was a scoundrel, a liar, a cheat, manipulator, and God came after him. This whole point of this is to level the playing field and say, no one is better than anyone else. We're all in deep trouble, and our relationship with God can't depend on anything that we have done or will do or our bloodline. That gets us nowhere with God. The second and third question are related. Well, this sounds unjust to me. Look at verse 14. This sounds unjust. This isn't fair. And how in the world can God hold me responsible if he's the one that initiates things? How in the world can he hold me accountable? Why am I responsible? How does this fit together? Well, here's Paul's answer. Look at verse 15 and 16. Is God unjust? Look at verse 15. This is what it says. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. You want to talk about justice? Well, friends... Paul's here to convince you justice is based upon merit or demerit. You want justice? What you really want and need is mercy. Mercy is 100% free. Mercy is without obligation by definition. Justice is based upon merit or demerit. And you want that before God? Paul's saying, no, 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 no. Is there injustice with God? Absolutely not. But you're not looking for justice. You want mercy. You want mercy. And Then he gives this example of Pharaoh. He even says in the text that something, that might, something else that might give you heartburn. Is that God hardened Pharaoh's heart? Quick sidebar on that. Because I know you hear that and think, well, my goodness, what does this mean? Great question. Absolutely legitimate. I'm trying to encourage you to think about questions. Go slow. Take your time. Let everything inside of you come out where you can ask something and deal with it. Remember that the text tells us, if so you go back and read the story of Pharaoh, that Pharaoh hardened his own heart and God ended up hardening it after. Well, what does hardening mean? How does God do that? Well, God tells us in Romans 1. He gives them over. You see, when God hardens someone, He doesn't actively do anything. He removes His restraining hands. So that the individual that is hardening themselves toward God is allowed to continue in their direction. So that the worst judgment that you could ever think of in relationship to you and God is him removing his hands. Not actively making you worse. That's not what it's saying. But God gives you over so that you become more hateful, more spiteful toward God and other people, more bent on yourself, more concerned with who you are and you defining who you want to be. You defining what's right and wrong. The worst thing that can happen is that God gives you over and just says, you can go on. Well, the next answer that Paul gives in 19 and following, remember, is there injustice with God? Oh, you don't want justice. You need mercy. Wow, in the world can God hold me responsible? If my relationship with God depends on his initiating love, okay, I'll buy the mercy part. But how in the world can I be responsible if everything's dependent on his initiating activity? Well, Paul says, here's the answer to that. You're not gonna like it, but you need to think relationally. You notice when you read those verses, 19 and following, Paul doesn't lay out uh, succinct, cohesive uh, uh, data laid out in a way that you can understand where, where he just explains everything front to back. He doesn't, he doesn't lay, give you more data. He doesn't put in a nice system so that you can answer everything. He just says, think relationally. Uh, There's a potter and there is clay. And you are clay. Dave is clay. God is the potter. He's borrowing Old Testament imagery like he's been doing since verse 3. He's saying to you, You wanna ask this question about how in the world God can hold you responsible? He just says point blank. Who are you? You're clay. How can you respond to God? Who are you to think that you can put God in his place? Think relationally. Remember who you are. You are a human being before an almighty, all-glorious, infinite God. If he doesn't think some ways that you, if if he thinks in ways that are different from yours, he might be right. Hope you caught my sarcasm there. If you are a finite creature and you can't understand everything about God, we are in a great place. Because we gotta bow down. We gotta humble ourselves. We have to remember that we're clay and that he's the potter. And then... He turns it into, in the last few verses of chapter 9, he turns it into this glorious, glorious picture quoting Hosea and quoting Isaiah about how God is determined to gather a people who are both Jew and Gentile from all over the world. And here's the thing. I, ju- I can just mention this super quickly. Read back through those, the quote from Hosea. Read back through the quote from Isaiah. Look, every other religion is looking for servants, uh, to some extent bombers. Um, Every other religion is looking for yes men, for for those who are supposed to be experts. When you read those verses about what God's doing in the world, you know what God's looking for? A bride. She who is not my beloved, I call my beloved. And then in Isaiah, he ends with sons of God. He's talking about children. Do you know what the God of the universe is after? He's not after experts. He's not after yes men and women. He's after a bride. He's after children. He wants children. He wants people like you and me to belong to him and to receive from him all that he has. And to look at him as a heavenly father. It's amazing stuff. Well, That leads us to one final inescapable question that I'm sure you have on your mind. I feel like I gotta deal with it, very quickly. So if you're sitting there thinking today, well, is this saying that God has created people for hell? Let me answer that, briefly, and not comprehensively. No, God created human beings to flourish. You can read about it in Genesis. He created humankind. He created men and women to flourish individually, to flourish together, to flourish following God, to flourish with creation. He created us to flourish in every conceivable way. But we rebelled against God. And we sinned against God. And we injected poison into everything We are the ones that brought death and destruction everywhere and in everything. And so, if you're asking that question, if you're asking the question, did God create someone for help? Please, please think about this. Will you take sin a little more seriously? And will you consider the mercy of God may have a little bit more power than how you're thinking? And and will you take the story of Scripture and own it at a deeper level? Because there's a lot that's above the line. It's above us. But what God's laid out in Genesis through Revelation is clear. He created us to flourish. And our rebellion was tragic tragic that brings us back to our illustration remember the one that you put on the shelf let's take it off the shelf and look at it a little more so remember you got four shady friends right you got names to them yet so in the illustration you're the guy you're the person that went to your four shady friends So did you fail? No. So is it unjust that you only tackled one and wrestled one to the ground and the other three went out and did what they were planning on doing? Is that unjust because you didn't tackle them all? No. No. Friends, mercy needs to be way more powerful in our lives than how we typically think. Mercy is having a heart for those who are away from Jesus. Mercy is pursuing. Mercy is calling them out of that. Mercy is tackling and wrestling to the ground. Mercy is all of those things. And mercy, by definition, is free. It's a free choice. Mercy is free. What about those three that went ahead and robbed the bank, got in a shootout, were apprehended, and got maximum sentence? Are they not responsible? Of course they're responsible. Matter of fact, they were bent on doing what they were planning on doing regardless, weren't they? They were already devising the plan. In other words, maybe we should take sin a little bit more seriously. That apart from God's mercy, we are defined by sin and dominated by sin. Apart from God's mercy, we are bent on doing everything we can that is contrary to God, whether we recognize it, admit it, or not. From God's perspective, he sees rebellion and dominated by sin. You see, friends, till sin be death, God's mercy will not be be life.